probably about 18 months ago that uh, I read a book by Artaxerdia called uh, Spirit Empowered Preaching. Now, Artaxerdia is uh, one of the most gifted preachers that I know of. Uh, we've been to his church. Uh, we've heard him preach. He's, um, he's a pastor of a church in the San Francisco area. And uh, so I picked up his book, just respecting his ministry quite a bit. And uh, the premise of this book is Spirit-Empowered Preaching. Is that it's the Spirit's role to do what? To exalt Christ. And so if you want to have a, a ministry, a preaching ministry, that is most empowered by the Spirit, you need to have a preaching ministry that desires and that lifts high Christ because that's getting in line doing exactly what the Spirit does, right? I mean, Spirit-empowered preaching doesn't mean ranting and raving and sweating and yelling. Spirit-empowered preaching means exalting Christ because that's what the Spirit is trying to do and the Spirit will certainly empower you to do that. Well, I want to read as I open this up, my sermon up this morning, a few paragraphs in this book because his experience is my experience. It's not been an easy experience. It's been a road. He says this on page 59, When I scan my Christian pilgrimage, I can quickly identify the three most significant high points. The first is my conversion. God saved me when I was 20 years old. The second is the evening God's Spirit opened my eyes to see the implications of the doctrines of grace. It felt as though I had been saved a second time. The third occurred a few years ago when I enrolled in a class at Westminster Seminary taught by Dr. Edmund Clowney. It was entitled, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Admittedly, I began the class with my resistance level turned up to full capacity, Never preach Christ if He is not specifically mentioned in the text from which you are preaching, I had always heard. And yet, for three hours each day, Dr. Clowney showed us from both exegetical and theological perspectives how the Old Testament ruthlessly points to Jesus Christ. Each day, I left class saying to my roommate, I love Jesus more today than I have ever before loved Him. Without sounding hopelessly sentimental, it was something akin to an Emmaus Road experience. Each day, my heart would burn. I just say that my experience closely parallels that of Mr. Arzurdia. I grew up in the church. My life was saturated with church activities, the things of Christianity. Yet, it wasn't until I was 21 that I fully grasp the message of the Gospel of Christ, that when God saves an individual, He will transform that individual to be a new creation. He'll live differently than before. A year later, when I was 22, I was confronted with the doctrines of grace. These doctrines teach that my salvation had nothing to do with me. And that before the foundation of the world, God chose me in Christ And the reason that I'm saved is only because of God's work done long before the world began. He lavished His grace upon me. And I remember first resisting it. 
In fact, I remember I can tell you the place and time. I said, no, no, no. What about Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Isn't that you doing something? And I remember the, the man I spoke that to was very gracious and patient. And he said, well, well, look at the next verse. The reason why you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because it's God who works in you. Right? Because you have nothing to do with it, is what he's saying. It's the doctrines of grace. If he opened the Scripture, my mouth was shut and began to read the Scripture anew from a new light of the, the sovereignty of God and it's all over the Scripture. That was the second conversion experience I had. And it's been in recent years, whatever, 15 years later, that I've come to see the centrality of Christ in all the Scripture. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels describe Jesus. And the epistles interpret Jesus. All the Bible is focusing upon Christ. And like Artaxerxes, I too resisted this as well. I remember my seminary training, and I'm grateful this day, eternally grateful for the seminary training that I received. I believe it was top-notch. I was trained to study each text description, the original languages, and understand it and dissect it and know how to proclaim the truths of that Scripture as they come out of the text. Now, from such a methodology, I'd come to embrace a similar maxim that Artaxerxes had. Never preach Christ if He's not specifically mentioned in the text from which you're preaching. And it's been in recent years, probably really since I've been preaching week in, week out, that I've come to see the truth of the centrality of Christ as the overall message of the Bible. And perhaps the words of Jesus Himself helped me more than any other in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus was speaking with the religious leaders of the day and He said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life. And it's these that bear witness of Me. Now, that was a slap in the face to these religious leaders. They were experts in the content of the Bible. They knew the Bible, I would say, better than all of us do. And yet, though they knew the Bible in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, knows in it, memorizing the Pentateuch, they didn't get the answer right. And in getting the answer wrong, all of their study was gone and useless. Because they thought that life was here. But, but life isn't here. Life is where this points. Life is in Christ. It's upon the cross. And to miss the life is to miss the point. They had clues to the puzzle. They understood clearly all the clues. They they just simply couldn't come up with the answer. Now, in John 5.39, Jesus tells us the answer. He says, the answer of the Bible is Jesus. It's me. And it's our joy to discover how it does. As you study the Scriptures, you see more and more. That's true. Now, at this point, I need a disclaimer a little bit. I do not believe that every verse of Scripture points directly at Jesus. Okay? People have believed that and fallen, I think, into immense error. It causes a lot of uh, symbolism, allegorical interpretation. Particularly, what do you do with the genealogies? And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so begat so-and-so. You've got to just mysticize that. And oftentimes, people who think that every verse points to Christ get involved in numerology. Other heresies. However, I think the way the Scriptures point to Christ is that there are these great themes in the Old Testament that are all pointing towards Jesus. 
Okay? You can view them as like highways. You think about Chicago. <clears throat> think about Rockford. If you go up north, go to Milwaukee, you can get to Chicago down through 94. Through Rockford, you can get to Chicago through I-90. Or in DeKalb, you can get to Chicago through 88. Or down south, you can get to Chicago through I-80. And they're all roads going to Chicago. These you can think of as themes in the Scripture. I mean, like, and I'm just pulling out some. They're not, you know, they're not specific themes, but like this. You know, the theme of sin-deserving punishment. When Adam and Eve fell, they were cast out of the garden and punished with pain and toil all their days. Or a theme in the Bible of God being a great deliverer, delivering Egyptians from bondage. Or the, the theme of the fact that a sacrifice is needed for sin. Right? Leviticus is all about sacrifices for sin. There's a theme of God's faithfulness to provide, providing manna in the wilderness, providing a land for Israel in which to live. And all of these things are pointing in some ways then to Christ, who is the punishment for our sins upon the cross as our sins deserve. Christ has become our great deliverer by faith in Him. We're freed from our sins. Jesus was the great sacrifice. Jesus is God's great provision for us. And the extent that Match of these verses in the Bible speak about Christ is because they get on the highway of these themes pointing to Christ. Because they come up often in the Scriptures. And you can think about many other, right? The role of a prophet, the role of a priest, the role of a king, how Christ was all of those. You can think about the suffering of the people of God and how Christ suffered. You can think about the promised blessing and how Christ is the one who, who fulfilled that promise, who guaranteed there will be a future blessing. God's favor upon the humble. Christ Jesus was the most humble of all. God's choice of His people. God's choice of His chosen servant, Christ. God's wrath upon evildoers which came upon the cross. You see, all these themes are fulfilled in Jesus. And I'm personally excited as we begin 2006 to go through the whole Bible. To even figure out for myself and to teach you and so we can figure out together and see just how the whole Bible strings together. We're going to go through the whole Bible in 2006. And we're going to see probably some of these themes and Christ will come alive and well as we preach through the Old Testament. <coughs> okay. What does that have to do with today? It's a good question. Here's what it has to do with today. For the past month, <clears throat> month and a half at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've been looking at the cross of Christ. We've seen Christ suffer at the hands of Roman soldiers, scourged and whipped. We've seen Him crucified. We've seen Him buried. We've seen Him raised and appear to many people. Unless we <clears throat> simply move on and miss the importance of the cross, I want for us to take a few weeks, this week and next week, to uh, really look and realize how central the cross is to all of history. We need to think about the implications of the cross in our lives, right? As I said, the Old Testament anticipates the cross. The New Testament explains the cross. The time of message this morning is the centrality of the cross. And it's my purpose this morning to, to look and see what the New Testament writers say about the cross. And we'll see how utterly crucial it is to the Christian life. <clears throat> I remember when I was a little boy. Okay, Dad probably remembers this too. We would go on road trips and we'd be driving in a car. And Dad would be driving along and he'd see this sign come along the side of the road. And, you know, <clears throat> if it was a green sign, it told him where to go, right? If it was a white sign, it told him how fast he could go. If it was a brown sign, it told him where he could stop. And so when he drove along the way and he saw a brown sign and it had some geological formation or some state park or some scenic overlook, he went, Aah! 
and turned over and said, hey, get ready, we're going to get out. And about that time, you know what happened in the back of the car? Maybe you remember. Oh, Dad, do we have to? We would groan because we wouldn't stop. want to stop. <clears throat> well, <laughs> well, today we've seen a brown sign along the side of the road. And if you're groaning, saying, let's keep going through Matthew. Well, then this message is for you because you need to realize how important this green sign is. It's the sign of the cross of Christ. For all who name the name of Christ, the cross is central in our lives. And that's my point. The centrality of the cross. I want to show you how central that is in our lives. The cross isn't some secondary doctrine. It's not something that can be neglected. It lies at the very heart and center of our lives and our ministry. This morning, I want to give you four exhortations about the cross. First is this. Believe in the cross. Believe in the cross. Open up to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Believe in the cross. <clears throat> Central to the Christian life is the belief in the sufficiency of the work that Christ performed on the cross. Now, this may be obvious, but it bears repeating. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. In that verse, the Apostle distills the truth of the Gospel down to one simple sentence. In fact, it's such a good summary that many of us have memorized this verse. A lot of you children are involved in Awana. How many of you have memorized Romans chapter 10, verse 9? Some of you? Some of you? Raise your hands higher. Come on, kids. <clears throat> okay, let me start it for you. Maybe you don't know it. If we say it together with me, right? If we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. A common verse because it distills everything down right to the core center of the Gospel message. The Apostle Paul puts forth two requirements for the one who will be saved from his or her sin and they both focus upon Christ. Right, The first is an external confession of who Jesus is. The next is an internal conviction of what Jesus did. With the mouth there must be confession. With the heart there must be conviction that God raised Him from the dead. Now, in terms of sequence, I believe that it's the heart that first believes and then the tongue follows in confession. That's what verse 10 says, right? With the heart, a man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. I, I want to illustrate this. Suppose I invited one of the children to come up here on the stage, right? And to put their hands right here on, on the pulpit. And I back up. And I take out this. And I say, Wham! Well, how's the child going to respond? Wow! Oh, going to cry and going tears. <clears throat> Mom and Dad won't be happy. That's why I'm not doing it. Otherwise, I might do it with you. <clears throat> what caused the cry? The hammer. It's the pain. In other words, the reality of the pain the child experiences, or adults, maybe adults want to volunteer. The reality of the pain creates a vocal expression. Ah! Ouch! Right? That's why I believe. I believe it's faith in the heart creates and compels 
and outer confession. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament illustrates this greatly is the story of the four lepers in the time of Elisha. <clears throat> the Arameans came to attack the people of Israel. They're sitting right outside the city of Samaria. As they came to that city, there are four lepers who are sitting outside of the gate. And they were in a predicament. See, there was this big famine going on inside the city. <clears throat> the uh, Arameans were coming against them. If they go in the city, they're going to die of famine as the Arameans circle the city and starve them out. If they sit there at the gate, the Arameans are going to trample them. And so they reason like this. They said in Second Kings chapter 7, Why do we sit here? If we say we will enter the city, then all the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. We're going to die anyway. Might as well risk it. Before the lepers came into the Aramean camp, the Lord caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and the sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, which caused them to stir in their hearts. And they thought that the Israelites had allied with the Hittites and the Egyptians who were coming to deliver them. And so the Arameans left. They just left camp. So these lepers arrive in camp and find it deserted but full of food and drink and silver and gold and clothes. These Arameans, who were close to the famine, then began to eat everything up and to drink and have a party of a time. And they said, oh, we got this gold and silver. And they gathered up the gold and the silver and they took it and they buried it. And then they went back again and they, they took up this gold and the silver and then they buried it. And then by the time they came back the third time, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So this isn't right. We are not doing right, 2 Kings 7, 9. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. See, it's in the day of good news, you can't keep silent. You ought to go forth, you ought to proclaim it. And they returned to the gatekeepers of the city and told them how the Aramean camp was deserted and saved the city that day. And that describes exactly how one who is saved from his sin will respond. It's a day of good news, you cannot keep silent. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, has come to the earth to save sinners like me. He died for me, though I, in every way, should be called, am called, was called, His enemy. I was hostile in mind. I was engaged in evil deeds. I wasn't seeking God, but He sought me when I wasn't seeking Him. I deserved to die in my sins, but God gave me the gift of eternal life instead. And I just say, that's amazing grace. It's a day of good news. I cannot... Keep silent. And that will come forth from your mouth. You too can be saved of your sin. Christ has saved me. He can save you. Peter said it this way, you're a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness to life. You're a people, a people of God saved for the purpose of proclaiming His excellencies. God saves us and makes us a people that we might be His mouthpiece to speak forth of His own glories. One of which is His exalted posture, right? Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. He is the Sovereign One. I would contend that should your mouth remain silent and you don't confess the sovereign reign of Jesus over all things, you cannot be saved. Listen to what Jesus said. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father 
who is in heaven, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, God doesn't have a secret army of His followers. His followers are bold to profess the name of Christ. His followers will tell others that they become disciples of their Master who is King Jesus. And His followers will overflow in their message to others. That's what Romans 10 verse 9 says. Listen, but it's not merely the mouth that's important. The heart is, I would say, all important. Heart's all important. Should your heart refuse to believe, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will not be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's through Christ. It's the only pathway to God. There aren't many ways, many paths. Jesus isn't a way of salvation. He is the way of salvation. You can't be saved from your sins apart from Jesus, right? That's what Peter said, Acts 4.12. There's salvation in no other name that's been given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Christ. In other words, the only way to be saved from your sins is faith in Jesus. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, you've you got to realize this, this faith isn't some nebulous pie-in-the-sky sort of faith. It's the faith in the work of Jesus Christ, right? Romans 10.9 Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Right? Give substance to your faith. It's faith that Christ rose bodily from the dead. This verse Paul uses, the resurrection as the culminating event in Christ's work on the cross. But to believe in the resurrection, you must believe in the crucifixion, Because you can't raise unless he was killed. And he was killed by crucifixion. You need to believe in his sufferings and in his life as he's raised from the dead. It's there that he's declared to be the Son of God with power. You need to believe all those other things. The resurrection is is, is a summary, the, the culmination of the work on the cross. So I say, do you believe? Do you believe? Especially you children. Do you believe this? You're to be saved from your sins. You must. The cross is central to our faith. To be saved from your sin, you need to believe the cross. Second point this morning. The cross of Christ is also central not just to how you're saved, but to how you live. Here's my second point. Boast in the cross. This has been the theme of much of our service this morning. Boast in the cross. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Boast in the cross. If indeed the Lord has saved you from your sin... It will have a mighty effect upon your life. We saw in Romans 10.9 that your mouth will speak forth of His excellencies. But you know what? It goes far beyond that. If you believe in the cross, it will affect your thoughts, your attitudes, your mind, your desires, and your speech. Galatians 6.14 May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who come to embrace Christ, they they come to realize the cross is everything to them. And that's what Paul's saying. So engaged is Paul with with the work of Christ and what he did that he said, may it never be that, that there's anything else that I should boast of except Christ and the cross. What's true of him is also true of us. Now, this verse has a double negative. 
makes it a bit tricky to understand, right? He has no desire to boast in anything except the cross. Let me put it in positive terms for you. Paul says, I desire that I boast only in the cross. Boast only in the cross. And so I exhort you, church family, to boast only in the cross. And now when you think about this, this really is a strange thing. Is it? Boast in the cross? Is that strange for you? If it isn't, I think it's because your image of the cross is so different than the image of the cross in Jesus' day. Right? When we think about the cross, we think about a nicely varnished furniture that's displayed in a church. Or a nice, you know, I mean, that, that's pretty nice. That's pretty, right? That cross that's up and over there. It's a nice symbol. Sometimes perhaps a piece of jewelry around her neck. But listen, you need to realize the earliest of Christians never wore a cross around their neck. They didn't put crosses in their churches because for them, the cross was an instrument of cruelty. And they just couldn't, couldn't bring themselves to that. Or if they put that there, people are going to say, what is that? It was only after people had never witnessed a crucifixion on their own that then we have evidence of crosses showing up in jewelry and art. I want to try to put it in context for you. Imagine, I've just moved to Illinois from Texas. As you begin talking to me, you begin to, to hear me talking about a, a certain f- poor farmhand whose name was Santo. A- and he lived a few years ago, but he died a tragic death when some of his enemies tied his hands together and then tied those hands to the back of a pickup truck and then drove that pickup truck all around the Texan desert until finally your friend Santo died. But as I relate this story to you about Santo, rather than being sad or distraught over this event, for some reason I appear to be exceedingly happy as I say this event to you. (laughs) Yeah, my friend Santo. He had his hands tied around his head and dragged around the desert until he died. I tell you that also, if you believe in the death rite of Santo, all your sins can be forgiven of you and you can have eternal life. Not only this, but your whole family can have the same blessing as well. All you need to do is believe in Santo who was dragged around the Texan desert. To get to know me for a bit, you find out that almost every weekend I'm pretty busy. I go off to gather with these people who likewise have come to believe in Santo as well. We get together, we speak highly of this pickup truck. In fact, we even sing songs about this pickup truck. Oh, mighty truck. Oh, chain so strong. They tied his hands. He dragged so long. His being dragged on rocky roads has made the mighty truck a ride of life to me. Something's not quite right there, is it? But that's what we sung this morning. And the same imagery ought to come to your mind. In fact, you find out 
about me. I love to talk about the details, the events that took place when Santo died. I love talking about the sufferings that he endured. I love talking about the, the rocks that his head would have hit as the, the pickup truck, his four wheels would have missed the rock, come right down the middle and bam, Santo's head would have nailed there. I love talking about that. I love talking about the time that the, the pickup truck took a, took a sharp turn and, and swung him around and slammed him into a cactus. When with my friends, we like to talk about the things he said, the things that Santo said, and the things that Santo did during his short life here on earth. And in fact, sometimes you get to know me a little bit. You even caught me talking to Santo as if he's alive and well right here in this room. And on many occasions, I've told you of what I believe and how you need to believe as well. And one day you saw this around my neck. He said, what is that? I said, oh, this is the truck that killed my friend Santo. And you need to believe in him. And I will boast in nothing else except the pickup truck. Does that help put it in context for you? I mean, you laugh because it is so strange See, it's not natural for us to boast about these things. We don't boast about someone being dragged around in a Texan desert until they died. What do we boast about? We boast about great things like ourselves, right? Pride is so engrossed in our hearts that we love to speak highly of our accomplishments, our possession, our abilities, and our children. And for all of this, all these things come naturally, but boasting in pickup trucks or crosses doesn't come naturally unless... Unless we see the reality. And if we see the reality, we can boast in a pickup truck. We can boast in a cross. We see the reality that on the judgment day, there will be one thing that's valuable to you. Only one thing that's valuable to you on on the judgment day. And that will be the cross of Christ. All other boasting will be utterly foolishness. I mean, and think about this. Suppose you go up to Shaquille O'Neal. You say, hey, Shaq, look at what a great baseball, basketball player I am. You, know, you dribble a ball a little bit. You say, ha, left-handed, I can shoot a layup. Look at that. Shaq would look at you and say, ha, ha, give me that ball. Boom, without even jumping. And you think you're a good basketball player? I mean, we can't boast of our abilities. Or suppose that I want to boast about the house that I own. And I go up to Bill Gates and say, Billy, Billy, let me show you the large house I have. Let me give you a tour. And in less than five minutes, you've given a complete tour of every closet and of every bathroom, okay? And Bill Gates would break out laughter, laughter. He might invite you to his home in Medina, Washington, which is better described more as a compound than a house. Covering some 66 square feet, his dining room alone is a thousand square feet. Property is valued at $140 million. He pays a million dollars in taxes each year. And Bill Gates would look at your house and say, <laughs> you're boasting in that? Well, if boasting before others is difficult, think about boasting before God. Should you attempt to boast before God about your strength? You'll be undone. God says, I created the world in six days with the word of my mouth. And you're proud that you can bench press 400 pounds? 
foolishness. Or if you try to boast before God about your intelligence, you're going to be embarrassed. God says, you know what? How many hairs are on your head? I don't know. And he'd tell you the number of hairs on your head, right? He would say, what's the name of these stars in the universe? He'd tell you the name of the stars in the universe. He'd, he'd give you the quiz like he gave to Job in Job 38 through 42. And you'd be embarrassed. You can't answer God. You can't boast about your intelligence before God. Should you attempt to boast before God about your riches? Again, the Lord would remind you, listen, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and all who dwell in it. This is mine. What you think is yours is only yours for a little bit of time. But if you're dead and you're standing before God, so what's in your possession now, huh? But you need to realize that there is one thing that we can boast of before God that, and I say this reverently, will silence Him. It's the cross of Christ. You can say to God, you know what, God? I have nothing, but there's one thing I have. I have the cross of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. And that is my boast and my glory and my confidence. I have a righteousness that's not my own. And God will be silent because He can't top that. And so I simply say, church family, that if you can boast before God of something that you have before Him, you certainly can boast about that very thing before men, can you not? So I exhort you, right? Boast in the cross. Believe in the cross. Boast in the cross. Now our third point here. Preach the cross. At this point, I want you to turn over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. This point really makes sense out of the light of the other two. If the cross is our only way of salvation, if the cross is the only boast of our souls, then it stands to reason the cross would be at the focal point of our message as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Now, the cross isn't a popular message. It wasn't popular in Paul's day. It's not popular in our day. Some turn away from the Gospel today because it's not sophisticated enough for them. It's so simple, right? They say, faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Surely the great reality of the universe has to be more complex than that. So some find the Gospel to be foolishness because it's not wise enough for them. Some find the Gospel to be foolish because it's not flashy enough for them. In this age of high-impact cinematography and surround sound, people are looking for something exciting in their religion. And churches, by the way, are trying to provide it. I heard one uh, unsaved testimony recently. They went around to a bunch of churches. And um, they basically concluded that Christianity is basically a, a rock concert. It's a glorified rock concert. It's what their assessment was upon the modern church culture. <clears throat> because the church is trying to compete with the high-impact cinematography of the world. A message about a man who died some 2,000 years ago isn't quite thrilling enough for these people, and so they ignore the message of the Gospel of Christ because it's not flashy enough for them. Now, in the, the time of Paul, same objections were there. Right? We read in verse 22 that the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. And... As a whole, neither of those people groups received the Gospel of Christ. The Jews stumbled over the message of the crucified Messiah, right? The sign wasn't big enough. 
They couldn't fathom the thought of, of Messiah dying. They had understood Messiah, rightly so, to be one who rules and reigns. But they'd missed the fact he's also one who suffers and dies first. But because they didn't have the sign of his rule in the reign, they refused to believe. It wasn't flashy enough for them. The Greeks considered the message of the cross to be foolishness. It wasn't wise enough for them. In fact, we found the palace of Septimus Severus, one of the Roman emperors, a cartoon etched. dates back to the early centuries of the death of Christ. Kids, I have a picture for you right there on your notes. The drawings of a man kneeling before a god whom he's worshipping. And this god is on a cross. And this god is a body of a man and a head of a donkey. And beneath the picture of the man worshipping the donkey on the cross are written these words, Alexemenos worshipping his God. Alexemenos worshipping his God. And it summarized really the quarrel that the world has with the Christian gospel. For the early Roman people, citizens, and Corinthians... If you are going to worship a God upon the cross, you might as well be worshiping an ass. It was foolishness to the Greeks. But despite the unpopularity of the message, Paul wasn't detained from preaching the cross. He said, we preach Christ crucified. In fact, so centered was his ministry upon the cross. He said over in chapter 2, verse 2, I had determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I hope you start hearing some of the superlatives that have caused these points to come. You can say, be saved only through the cross of Christ. Our both should only be in the cross. And our message should only be the cross. That's what Paul said. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, it doesn't mean that the resurrection was excluded from his preaching. In fact, chapter 15, turn over there. Paul speaks about what he delivered as of first importance. What was the primary thing? What was the key thing? What was the main thing? It was the gospel of Christ. And what was the gospel of Christ involved? We've quoted this often. These days, we're thinking about the cross of Christ. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And it speaks about how He appeared to all these people. That was the first importance. That was the message of Him dying, being buried, being raised, and appearing to people. That's His message, which He summarized by saying, Christ crucified. It's a simple summary of the events on the cross. But notice notice how central these things are. This is first importance, chapter 15, verse 3. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, it's the only thing he determined to know. When he summarized his preaching, he preached Christ and Him crucified. That, that summarizes everything that he preached. It's the message that we ought to preach as well. I'm not talking about preaching merely the activity that takes place here on Sunday mornings. The man standing behind the pulpit delivering a nice 50-minute talk. I'm, I'm talking about any sort of proclamation we do. If Paul preached Christ, we ought to be speaking about Christ. We ought to be like Paul in, in chapter 2, verse 2. 
I think this isn't so much talking about his preaching. I think it's about his, his counseling with the people of the church. There was nothing. I was talking to you Christians. I was talking to you non-Christians. I was talking to you Corinthians before you were saved, after you were saved. And there's only one thing that I was focused on is Christ and Him crucified. I'm talking about any sort of proclamation we do. I'm talking about discussions that you might have with your neighbor, your family member, your friend. Right? When you speak to them, leave with them the impression that your message has to do with a person who died on the cross. Let them not leave your presence. Say, oh, now what? What are they talking about? Cut to the chase. Get to the answer. Get to the solution. The Scriptures speak about me. So talk about Jesus. This message isn't just for unsaved people. I mean, you ought to be telling your friends in the church about the Gospel of Christ. In fact, next week, so crucial, I think, is the centrality of the cross that I'm going to deliver a whole message on what would have been my fifth point here, live the cross. And you'll be astonished how many times the New Testament writers speak about the life that Christ lived now ought to be center and focus in our lives as we live as well. But that's next week. But we need to speak with one another about the cross because it will remind us how we interact with people forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven us. How we interact with our sin, right? Because we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. How does we live, right? We live for Christ. Dying is just gain because it takes us to be there. And Paul spoke constantly about the work that Christ had done on the cross. Now, let me step back a little bit at this point and just say, when you think about this, don't think about my wife's pet parakeet named Cinnamon. When Yvonne grew up, they had a little pet, Cinnamon. <coughs> parakeet. And <laughs> you think about this pretty cruel. Okay. This ranks right up there with accordions, Cheryl Duncan. <laughs> you had to be there like three years ago for that joke. So anyway, they locked the bird up in a room and they played over and over and over and over and over a record that said, come up and see me sometime. Come up and see me sometime. Come up and see me sometime. So that the parakeet hears that. And so then... You walk up to the parakeet and come up and see me sometime. Come up and see me sometime. That's what it says. Also, it went lollipop. Lollipop. Lollipop is a cat's name. That's not what it means to preach Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't mean that Paul is saying Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. He didn't say the same thing everywhere, the same words, never addressing any subject but the cross. Rather, it means that the cross was so central to this preaching that everything he preached centered and made a beeline right for the cross of Christ. had a great illustration that this week. This past week, my family traveled down to Petersburg, Kentucky, where Answers in Genesis, an apologetical ministry, is building a creation museum. And the aim of the museum is really to present a biblical view of the world from the creation of the world to the cross of Christ. And they're projected to finish the, the museum in April of 2007. We're privileged to spend Thursday morning there and Friday morning there. I would commend it to you and encourage you to go. Now, during this time, we had an opportunity to listen to Ken Ham. Have you heard Ken Ham speak before? One of the things amazing, I've heard him speak more than a dozen times, and every time I hear him speak, he always has the same message. The book of Genesis is, is foundational to the Bible and the book of Genesis is foundational to your understanding Christ's work on the cross. It explains where sin came and that's what Christ sought to eradicate. 
That's all he says. You need to believe in Genesis because it culminates in Christ and the cross. To believe in Christ correctly, you need to believe in Genesis. To, to forsake Genesis is to forsake the cross. But you know what's amazing? His message to me has never seemed repetitive. Why? Because he's always taken a different angle on it. He's always taken a different slant. He's always shown different applications, new applications to the same one message. And if you've heard him speak, you know what I'm talking about. And with Paul, it's the same way. Every time throughout all his letters, his message is always the same. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. His preaching is always the same. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But never in his epistles does it come across dull or overly familiar because he's constantly looking at the cross from a different angle. For instance, let's look at 1 Corinthians. Okay, I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's just consider 1 Corinthians. For the sake of time, I'm not sure we'll get through the whole book. I'm prepared to go through every chapter of 1 Corinthians and show how it relates back to Christ crucified. But chapter 1, he's addressing the issue of personality cults. And he says, listen guys, Christ was the one crucified. Paul wasn't crucified. Apollos wasn't crucified. It was only Christ. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We're not following gifted personalities like those in Corinth were doing. And you see what he's doing? He's preaching Christ crucified and all the implications behind it. Chapter 2. He addresses the issue of true wisdom. He said the true wisdom isn't for the world and it isn't of the world. If the world had known it, chapter 2, verse 8, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The world's wisdom crucified the Lord of glory. But that's precisely where true wisdom is to be found. It's found in the crucified Lord of glory. Right? All of chapter 2, focusing upon the same issue, the wisdom of God. Chapter 3, he addresses the issue of church growth. He says, Christ has laid the foundation through His work on the cross. Chapter 3, verse 11. No man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right? His work on the cross laid the foundation for the church. All who build the church must build upon Christ and His work. Chapter 4. Paul addresses the issue of ministry. All ministers of the Gospel are to be regarded as servants of Christ. Who, as verse 7 says, has given to us everything. None of His servants are superior, right? Because the cross has leveled all playing fields. We're all servants of our Master. Now, in chapter 4, it's not explicitly said, but I would trust that that is His argument. Right? We suffer like Christ did. We're fools for Christ's sake. Verse 10. Chapter 5, He addresses the impurity within the church. Right? Sexual immorality doesn't exist even among the Gentiles. How can it be existing in your church? Because, as verse 6 and 7 say, Christ was our Passover. He cleansed the church through His sacrifice. And we ought not let sin spread in the church like leaven. Because Christ in the cross sanctified and purified the church. Lawsuits, chapter 6, coming up within the church. He reminds us of the Corinthians in verse 11. They've been washed and sanctified in the name of Christ. Therefore, such behavior of suing one another is wrong because you've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. You're different now. You're not like that. And we can go on and on, on and on, all the different chapters. It'll be in my notes. You can look at it. 
All the chapters of Corinthians always comes back to Christ and Him crucified. And that's what it means to preach Christ and Him crucified. It means we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We think of His sufferings for sin. We think about our resultant union with Him. We think about His gift of grace. And everything in all the ways we live and minister among people all comes back to Christ crucified. The centrality of the cross. Believe in the cross. Boast in the cross. Preach the cross. And finally this morning, remember the cross. Remember the cross. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Timothy was a young pastor of a church in Ephesus. Paul, his spiritual father, was soon to die. He was giving him his last advice to his faithful and beloved friend, co-worker in the work of the Gospel. He says this, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my Gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. I mean, you think about Timothy. Timothy was probably converted through the preaching of Paul. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul initially visited Lystra, Timothy probably heard the Gospel there of Jesus Christ. He was trained by his mother and his grandmother in the ways of the Old Testament Scriptures. But here hearing Christ, probably at that point, is a crucial time that changed his life. He was called in 1 Timothy 1 2 as true son in the faith. He refers to him as his beloved son. Timothy and Paul traveled together on some of the missionary trips where no doubt Paul trained Timothy for ministry. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church there. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to the church at Philippi, there's nobody else of kindred spirit among all his friends, except for Timothy. I mean, think about it. Of everybody, it's Timothy who's like the only one. I feel sorry for Luke and Epaphras and Demas. They're like, what more do I need to do? But Timothy was such a kindred spirit, such a kindred heart. And yet he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right? Or you might say another way, remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Remember the message that you are to believe in, boast in, and preach. It's Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, why do you think that Paul reminded Timothy of this? Why do you think that Paul says, remember Jesus Christ? I think it's because he easily could have forgotten. Because I know, and even in my own heart, how easy it is to forget Christ and Him crucified We can easily forget the central role of the cross of Christ. We can easily think, hey, we can move on in our lives. I think it's significant that of the two ordinances that Christ gave us, one has to do with conversion, relating us to Christ. The other has to do with His death and the Lord's Supper. And remember, He took the bread, He took the cup, and what did He say both times? Do this what? In remembrance of Me. Remember Me. And this is the thing. He said, okay, throughout all the time, the church is going to remember what? Death of Christ. The cross of Christ. Weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever. It's always going to come back. At least to the cross. To the cross. To the cross. To the cross. You need to remember Jesus Christ. I say it's so easy to lose focus on the central doctrine of our faith. It's easy for us to say, oh, we know that. But the day we're ready to move on from the cross of Christ is a day we will drift from the purposes of God. That's what the Galatians did. 
They heard a message about Christ, repented of their sins, received the Spirit of God, and then something happened. They drifted. Listen to how Paul described it. Paul warned them. He said, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, in their case, they began to think about the Old Testament law. Surely, yes, God saved them by faith, but how do laws like circumcision now work into the equation? And there were some among the Galatians who insisted that you must be circumcised to be saved. It works like this. Have you been saved by the blood of Christ? Why, why yes, I have. Then, don't you have a desire to please God in all that you do? Well, well, of course I do. Well, God commanded His people to be circumcised. So? And so, you need to be circumcised to please Him. I do? Yes! God commands it and you must do it. What if I don't? Then you cannot be saved. That's the syllogism. That's the logic. The result is this, that those who are saved by faith were attempting to be perfected by the law. As they began to think this way, they forgot Christ Jesus raised from the dead who sanctifies them by faith. And I'm telling you, it is easy for us to do. The Galatians went the way of legalism and we're not exempt of this as well. It can easily come upon us. Any number of legal requirements can slip into the church, can slip into our lives, can slip into our minds, whereby we create this external righteousness of things that can be kept. Right? And especially as you walk with Christ over the years, Christ is going to sanctify you and purify you and you're going to walk more and more holy before Him and you will be tempted. As C.J. Mahaney says, before the day is out, you will be tempted to, to look back and reflect upon your activities of the day and say, God, <laughs> I'm pretty good, aren't I? I went to church this morning. You know what? I'm caught up in my Bible reading. I've memorized these passages of Scripture this week. I am disciplining my children according to what the Bible says. And on and on they might go. I abstain from alcohol. I read the right verse of the Bible. I breastfeed my children. I homeschool my children. I, I don't smoke. We don't even have a TV in our house. Look at all these things, God. And all these things, okay? Many of which I said are good. Okay? They're not bad. I encourage you to many of these things. But the tendency is for us to start looking back on those things as meritorious for us. And when we ever look upon our Bible reading, upon our prayers, upon our devotion, upon our commitment to Christ, upon our evangelism, upon our witnessing, when we ever look at any of those things and boast up ourselves before God in any slight way, We've missed the cross of Christ. We're forgetting it. We're forsaking it. And so constantly, you need to be about preaching Christ and Him crucified to yourself, to your family members, to your church members, and to the world. It's easy. It's It's Christ and Him crucified. Think back. That there, when Christ died, that's where I have been reconciled to God. He purchased my death. He gave it all to me. I don't earn anything by all my righteous living. To do so is self Atonement. It's okay to have your convictions. It's okay and proper and right to live in those ways. Right? But, it, but don't pass it on others. Don't pass it on yourself, which I think is where the biggest danger is. Look at how good I am. Because the moment you do that, you're forgetting Jesus Christ and Him crucified. At some point, you may cross the line. And say, you can't be a Christian unless you do that because da 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 da. Well, the solution to this is focusing your minds upon Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, and then all of these things come in their proper perspective, and you'll see that none of them 
sanctify us before God. Well, that was the error of the Galatians and that is our tendency as well at Rock Valley Bible Church. We will tend that way. There is another danger. The danger is not towards legalism. The danger is toward license, liberty. Loosening up. Relax a bit. You've got to be balanced in these things, okay? There's got to be a balance someplace. We can live like this. We're okay. And you start drifting over here. That's a danger. How many churches have begun with a central focus upon Christ risen from the dead only to end up a century or two later denying the very foundations of their faith? In fact, I would say this. I don't have any percent. This is total, total unresearched statement, okay? But I would say that 95% of the churches planted, maybe 99% of the churches planted, maybe 99.9% of the churches planted, because as soon as I say 100%, someone's going to find some exemption. The vast majority of churches planted are those planted by Bible-believing, cross-centered, Him and Christ and Him crucified people. Because the liberals don't have any reason to plant a church. That's where all the churches are planted. Yet over the years, they drift away. It's a story of churches. It's a story of denominations. Right, they started, they held firmly to Christ and crucified. Over the years, they got bigger, purchased more buildings, had more staff, expanded their ministry, and they lost sight of the main thing. The social cause attracted their attention. The political cause grabbed their minds. Internal strife hindered them. Financial shortfalls directed their attention to fundraising rather than Christ proclaiming. And slowly but surely, they drifted. And many mainline denominations today have denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very thing Paul was told to remember. Paul told Timothy to remember. And why did they drift? Because they forgot the centrality of the cross. They forgot Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The same happens to schools. Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all start as seminaries where preachers could be trained. And yet today, where are they? They're bastions of pluralism. Return from what you started, right? Over the years, they drifted away from Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The school I went to, total secular school. Thirty years ago, they had mandatory chapel. Well, you know what? Maybe more like 45 years ago, I've been graduated for some long. But when I was there, I remember I had a professor who was on staff who said, yep, I remember when we had chapel every day. He used to smoke a pipe. And, you know, he used to speak like this because he had a pipe. And I remember talking with him. He's a physics professor. And he said, yep. I remember the day we had chapel every day, like 30 years ago. And now today, I'm telling you, it's one of the most pagan campuses across the nation, second only to UCLA. They forgot the centrality of the cross. Let me just finish with one story. story, perhaps you've heard this illustration before, the the church that was planted upon the gospel of Christ. The church grew, they had more people, and so they built a building, beautiful red brick building. And above the entrance to the building, they placed a sign that says, we preach, we preach Christ crucified. And so every parishioner that walked in and out those doors all looked up there, we preach Christ crucified. They said, yes, yes, that's where we are. But over the years, some ivy began to grow up around the entrance to the door. And pretty soon it started covering the right-hand side of the, the sign. And so it says, we preach Christ and it was almost as if it was unnoticed by people. They didn't notice when they were walking in the door, and they didn't notice the very same thing was happening inside. Rather than preaching Christ crucified, they preached Christ. Some Jesus thing. 
And then as the ivy grew over the years, it just said, we preach. People didn't notice the change, but the sign on the outside was reflecting the reality of what was taking place in the cro- in, inside. And pretty soon the ivory started going across and it said, we And by the time the ivory covered the entire sign, the church was dead up, dried, had to sell the building. Why? Because they forgot the main message. They dropped the fact that Christ was crucified. They dropped the Christ. They're just preaching, just talking to we. And finally it's gone. And I just say, may this not be the case with Rock Valley Bible Church. May we believe in the cross. May we boast in the cross. May we preach in the cross. And may we remember the cross. Next week, may we live the cross. And then we'll get back to Matthew. So let's pray. Lord, I've thought long and hard on these things. My world has been shattered with these things. seeing that we have the answer to the Bible. Been trained and equipped with all the tools certainly to get there to the answer and certainly the answer was clearly said and clearly spoken. But I don't remember so clearly articulated this has come to my mind in recent years that the Scriptures don't have life. They have life in that they point to You. So I pray that Rock Valley Bible Church as we continue to grow, as we continue to get older and older May we never forsake these things. May the cross always be the object of our faith. May the cross of Christ always be the object of our boast. May the cross of Christ be what we speak of to the world. And may we always remember the cross of Christ. I pray today, Lord, that that You would even open the eyes of the people here at church that I might ask them next week whether this is true or not, whether this day they sought to pride themselves in the good things that they had done. I know I will be guilty of this before the day is out. I know I'm guilty of this now, God. So I pray that You would center our minds upon the cross and realize that all we have is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. God, it's not of ourselves. It's all of You. And may You take this message, sink it deep into our hearts, and use it for the glory of Christ. Amen.